want to invite you to take out your copies of the scripture this morning and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. And for the past few months, we've had volunteers at Faith leading us in Bible studies from Peter's letter to the early churches that were scattered throughout Asia Minor, what is now modern-day Turkey. And I haven't had the chance yet to preach one of these passages, but they've been resonating so much uh, on a personal level and on a congregational level, and I think even as I observe on a social and community level that I felt God prompting me to spend some time here on this passage with you this morning. Uh, So without putting it off any longer, let's read together. Uh, We're going to read 1 Peter 3, verses 8 to 12, and I'll be using the English Standard Version this morning. Um, 1 Peter 3, verses 8 to 12. Finally... All of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's just pray for a moment. Our Father in heaven, our desire this morning, as your children, is to listen close to your word, to take it seriously, and to willingly receive it as a gift that can transform us to be more like Jesus. Our prayer is that the Holy Spirit would minister this word to our hearts, that we would be soft and pliable clay in your hands, and that you, Father, would get all the glory for the work you have done, are doing, and will do in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know about you, but what stands out to me on first reading is the impossibly high calling that Peter extends to his readers. It's not just cultivating a particular set of virtues, but a commitment to being agents of blessing even when on the receiving end of cursing. There's a kind of holy stubbornness in these verses, an invitation into a world where we resolutely face our own suffering whether on a large or small scale, with a kind of transformative grace. And I think it's perhaps helpful to pause and question that word suffering a little bit. When we think of that word suffering, we tend to think rather big. Persecution, famine, war, violence, and so we should. That is suffering. But suffering... Even the kind of suffering that Peter is addressing in his first century letter here is often much less spectacular. And this isn't to downplay the severity of the kind of suffering that makes the six o'clock news or even to compare our first world hardships to war-torn and famine-stricken communities all over the globe. I'm not trying to compare those things. But the truth is that much of the suffering, much of the suffering around us, even the suffering within us, is often invisible. It's often unspoken or unaddressed. And Peter is writing to a community of churches 
that find themselves estranged from the culture around them. They're different. They operate from a different set of priorities and values, and that leaves them as objects of teasing, insults, cursing, and eventually even persecution to death. And Peter is addressing the same world that you and I live in, a world of brokenness and division. And this, if we're honest with ourselves, is something that each one of us understands. Maybe things are different here in Zurich, though. We have, we have our share of suffering, brokenness, and division in Waterloo Region. I'm not one who thinks that things are worse than they've ever been. The world has been plagued by brokenness and division since Eden. But we are, I think, certainly experiencing a time where the illusion of unity, togetherness, that illusion is disrupted by polarizing media forces, a growing spirit of individualism, and a lack of belief in any overarching purpose for humankind. And in our community, I don't know how it is here, but in our community, we're increasingly seeing brokenness and division in families and households, even in churches. And I think even as the pressures of the pandemic expose cracks and fractures that have been ignored and maybe asphalted over or sealed over for just a little bit too long, I don't expect it's much different for many of you. You are aware of the suffering, of the effects of brokenness and division around you. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe you're finding yourself getting close to the point where you say something like, you know, if the supervisor continues to refuse to give me Sundays off, I'm going to take him to the labor board. Or maybe it's, uh, well, if old so-and-so posts uh, one more conspiracy theory on Facebook, I'm leaving church. Or maybe you say, if nobody else at church starts posting conspiracy theories, I'm leaving church. Uh, maybe it's closer to home than that. Maybe it's been far too long since your spouse has looked at you with any kind of affection. Maybe it's just a word here or a roll of the eyes or a disinterested and dismissive click of the tongue or sigh when you voice a thought or an opinion. Maybe it's been too long since someone has looked at you with anything other than disdain. And the question then as followers of Jesus in that moment is how do we respond? How do we respond when we're met with that kind of brokenness? This is the world that Peter is writing to. And this is the world that you and I inhabit. Into this world, the apostle reminds us that the gospel of Jesus invites us into an impossibly high calling to return good for evil. And it gives us the power to live out that calling as we actively bless those around us. It gives us the power to live out that calling as we actively bless those around us. And we're going to look at that claim through three questions. What is, what is this call? Why does it matter? How do we live like this? What is the call? Why does it matter? And how do we live like this? So the passage starts off, if you look there in verse 8, with the word finally. And if we want to appreciate the scope of what Peter is saying here, we need to Press rewind a little and get a sense of what has led to these five adjectives in verse 8. 
and this strong exhortation in verse 9. So what's brought us to this point? And if you look back a few verses, we're going to find Peter providing instruction for these early Christians on how they are to relate and respond to the culture around them. And with every exhortation, he gets closer and closer to home. So if you look in chapter 2, verse 13 with me, you see Peter calling the church to an attitude, to a posture of submission to their governing authorities, human institutions, he calls them. And we might think of those as federal or provincial or municipal. Uh, Then if you look at verse 18, there in chapter 2, you see him suggesting the same thing for servants and masters, what we can apply to our own context as economic authorities. He's calling attention to the relationship between followers of Jesus and their social and their economic authorities, their bosses, their overseers, their supervisors. And he keeps on going, moving to households. In chapter 3, verse 1, he exhorts wives, have a posture of humble submission to their husbands. And then he comes right back at the husbands in verse 7, and he tells them to have a similar attitude, to honor their wives as equal heirs with you, of the grace of life. And so Peter's just winding this circle closer and closer. He starts out broad and he's bringing it home. And he's already got us, right? Uh, Any one of us might not be in all of those categories, but all of us are in one of those categories, right? You find yourself somewhere in there. And here in verse 8, Peter tightens that concentric circle a bit more and he gets into our inner life. He says, saying here, what matters if you want to be serious about how God wants you to relate to those around you. If you want to take this seriously, he says, if you want to have a right posture towards people in your life that God has put in your life, here are the qualities you're going to have to cultivate. And then he lays out these five adjectives, these five characteristics vital for followers of Jesus. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and a humble mind. So unity of mind, right? What's that? Well, some of your translations might say harmonious, right? I think that's uh, as good as, that's uh, probably a better translation, I think, because um, it's not calling for exact similarity in tastes or gifts or personality, right? That wouldn't be consistent with the biblical view of the, of the church. Uh, but being harmonious, having unity of mind means that together we share a vision for the essential things of life, chiefly the significance of the gospel, right? And so we live as though we have a shared vision, a shared purpose, That gives us unity of mind. Sympathy. This doesn't just refer to the expression of grief that we're used to giving when somebody is bereaved. Uh, It's not just the expression of grief or pity, but it also means to have a shared understanding between people. And it's the willingness to enter into someone else's experience, to listen to them, and to really, truly feel what they feel. That's sympathy. Have brotherly love. Peter says. Again, he's using the metaphor of family to describe this extraordinary kinship bond between believers. How was it between you and your siblings? How many, how many here have siblings? Yeah, most of us, right? Sunshine and roses all the time? Lovey-dovey, peaches and cream? Perfectly smooth relationships? Why on earth would Peter call us into that kind of relationship? Right? If, if you had the opportunity to have a cassette tape or a, a cassette tape, everyone, everyone under 20 is going, what is he talking about? If you could have 
your life played back for you, just the way you've treated your siblings, just that part. Would you be ready to sit down and watch that? Right? Probably not. Uh, sometimes we treat our family horribly, right? But there's a bond there that rarely, rarely breaks because of that love. Being willing to absorb the faults and flaws of others, just as you do your own family. That's the kind of relationship that Peter's calling us to. Tender-hearted. Some of your translations will say kind-hearted or compassionate. None of these words really capture the depth of this word. This is the same word that's used to describe what Jesus felt when it says in Mark 8, for example, that Jesus looked on the crowd and had compassion on them. The literal translation of the Greek word here refers to your guts, to your intestines, somewhere deep inside of you. You feel down, that feeling you get down low when you have butterflies or when you've witnessed something awful and you're, you're almost sick or you've received some terrible news and that expression we have is gut-wrenching. You know, to have a relationship with people where their traumas and their heartaches become so moving to us that we feel them deeply within us. This is what Peter's calling us to. Humble-minded. It's not just that we're to have an attitude of service to those around us or that we're to have a low opinion of ourselves. We're not called to that, but that we're to have a right opinion of who we are before God. Being humble-minded is living out of an attitude that acknowledges just how much we depend on God for even the most basic things of life, for breath, for bodily function, for basic safety. And it's an honest look to be humble-minded. It's an honest look at our own brokenness and sinfulness before a holy God. And that humble-minded honesty keeps us awestruck at the grace that's been given to us that God would die in our place so that he could open his arms and call us family. And see, God's word calls us as the church to cultivate these characteristics because this is what's required if we're going to successfully, as brothers and sisters, face the pressures, the conflicts, the brokenness and the divisions of life. And I don't know about you, but I can't read this list without having my conscience tweaked, right? Uh, I'm brutally aware of how much I need to grow, even in seemingly simple things like brotherly love and compassion. It's incredibly easy, and perhaps even more so in the information age, where we feel more connected to like-minded people across various media platforms than I do to people that I sit with every Sunday. You know what I'm talking about? how the information age has made it possible for us to feel more connected, to have more affinity with people who are hundreds of miles away than I do with the people that I sit with on a Sunday morning. People that I've made a covenant to love and support in all seasons, and I have to, I have to wrestle with that tendency in myself. It may be a good idea in this coming week to just sit with this verse for a while and ask the Holy Spirit to draw your attention to one or two of these words. Perhaps you're already aware of some much-needed growth in one or two of these characteristics, and if so, it's not too early to start praying that God would give you grace and power to grow. And it might even be good to call up a friend and invite them to pray with you, helping you stay accountable. Or you could even call your pastor. That's the kind of phone call he'd love to receive. Say, hey, you know what? And God's been calling me to grow in the area of compassion. Would you pray with me? 
that I would grow. That would be an awesome phone call for your pastor to get. You can call me. I'll pass it on. <laughs> Ryan has my number. I believe quite strongly that we're given the gift of community, of the church, because these characteristics, these characteristics that Peter outlines here, they only grow in relationship with others. Every one of these five adjectives is relational, and it's our lives together, intermingled in the complexity of community, what Kenneth Burke calls the wrangle of the human barnyard, which is probably my favorite expression. Uh, it's this togetherness life that becomes the fertile soil for our growth, All right? So that's what we're called to. We're called to this. But why does it matter? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's timely. Uh, if we want to understand why this calling on our lives matters, why it's important to God, then we need to wrestle a little bit with the phrasing in verse 9. And we'll just reread it again. Peter says here in verse 9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And so there's a bit of a grammar puzzle here. This might put some of you to sleep, I'm sorry. Grammar puzzles get me all excited. Uh, it's easy enough to understand, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, right? Your translation might say, don't repay cursing for cursing. Um, but on the contrary, bless. We recognize there the echoes of Jesus' words from Matthew 5. Right? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Paul's words in Romans 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. This is not foreign territory for the follower of Jesus. Uh, but things get a bit more complicated when we get to the phrase, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. It's not just a grammar puzzle for the sake of delight because uh, this is serious business. This matters. This is talking about a calling that God has placed on each one of our lives and we want to understand why it matters. So just bear with me here. We'll just kind of parse this out a little bit. Does this phrase, to this you were called, does it refer backwards to what came earlier in verse 9, to the act of blessing those who curse us, or does it instead refer forwards to what comes after, to obtain or to inherit a blessing? As followers of Jesus, is our calling to bless those who curse us so that we will inherit a blessing? Or is it to bless those who curse us because we have been called to inherit a blessing? Right? Now, I think that both of those things are true. But I think that is the first one that Peter's getting at. I think we have been called to bless those who curse us. Right? Both of them are grammatically possible. Scholars have been divided about how to read it best, but I want to make my case this morning for why it matters that the phrase refers back. We are called to bless those who curse us. It matters because if we read the phrase as pointing backwards, to bless those who curse you, then we end up with a kind of conditional statement. And for any of us, for any of us here in this room, or watching virtually any of us who struggled with legalism or a works-oriented faith, you know how quickly we can shy away from any kind of condition 
that's placed on inheriting a future blessing, right? But here's why I think this is the correct way to read this verse. I think the call on our lives is to bless those who curse us. And I think this because of the extremely close parallel phrasing that Peter gives us just a few verses earlier in chapter 2, verses 20 to 21. And if you would, please just take a look there with me. Uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 20 says, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. See, verse 20 tells us that we find favor with God when we suffer for doing right. That this is something that God understands, that he finds gracious. It's a good thing, God says, when we do not return evil for evil. And verse 21, for to this you have been called. There's that phrase again. To this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. And the resonance between verse 21 here and verse 9, that's part of our passage for this morning, is unmistakable. We are called to be like Jesus. And part of what it means to be like Jesus is to learn how to patiently refuse it's to patiently refuse to stop. It's to, it's to break that chain of evil and cursing, right? And to return blessing instead. The follower of Jesus is called to patiently endure, to be a part of stopping the chain of cursing, and to instead, on the contrary, to bless. And to be clear, you know, this verse is not advocating. I want to be clear, this verse is not advocating that we stand idly by while injustice runs rampant around us. And that faith we've recently finished preaching through the book of Amos. And you know, God's word makes it abundantly clear how he feels when his people ignore injustice against the marginalized, the vulnerable, the outcast. It's an incredibly serious thing in the eyes of God. The high calling here is not to ignore injustice. It's to our own attitude. Even as we address injustices around us, do we do it from a spirit of vindictiveness? Do we address injustice by returning evil for evil? Do we perpetuate the wickedness as we respond to wickedness? Or do we operate out of a posture of like-mindedness, sympathy, brotherly love, compassion, and humility? So what do we do then about this conditional sense, this, that you might obtain a blessing? What's going on with that? And I don't think we need to shy away from thinking about some of these conditions. Uh, for example, if you think of Jesus' words in the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Right? We get a sense that showing mercy is a condition for the great mercy we receive from God. There's, there's a reciprocal relationship between our willingness to show mercy and our readiness to receive mercy. It's a sense that's reinforced by Jesus' troubling parable about the unforgiving servant, right? So we understand 
that there is something at stake here. But this is not teaching us, this passage is not teaching us that the future blessing we're promised is something we will earn by our behavior or by our work. It's not teaching us that. Our blessing others does not earn us our blessing from God. And if you look back a few pages, 1 Peter 1, verse 13, you can read there with me. In 1 Peter 1, verse 13, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your mind, set your heart, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, our great hope, this great future blessing is a product of grace. And that's why the language of inheritance is used so much here in 1 Peter. The blessing will be inherited. It will not be earned. It's a gift of grace, not something we earn by what we do. But here's the catch, right? Here's the catch. That blessing will be graciously inherited by those who are born of God. That blessing will be graciously inherited by those who are born of God. And in 1 Peter uh, 1, verses 3 to 5, your finger's probably already close to there. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. See, this is why the language of family is so profound. Peter understands this is the business of new life, new creation. The evidence, the evidence in your life, the evidence in my life that we've been born of God is that we place all of our hope in that future blessing. We live like we understand that there is a day coming when the king will step back into time as we know it and set everything right. And our lively hope becomes real as we live that reality right now. There's something about brokenness and suffering that makes this lively hope of future blessing a gut-wrenching reality. And I see it, I see it all around me when I see, and this is in my community at home, when I see spouses who are willing to forgive broken vows and engage in the hard, hard work of restoration. I see that lively hope at work when I see that. I see it when parents in my community are willing to drive their son or their daughter back to that treatment program again and again and again. That is the evidence of the lively hope, that future blessing. I see it when someone absorbs a particularly painful and cruel truth. It might be something that's true, but the way it's phrased, the way it's spoken, is full of barbs and arrows, and I see them absorb it when it's lobbed in their direction because they're committed to living out that lively hope and to return blessings for curses. And you know what? God sees it too. That's the promise here. God sees it too. 
Peter refers to the beautiful poem in Psalms 34 to reinforce this entire theology. We don't have time to read it today. But that poem, Psalm 34, tells us God watches and understands what is at stake when His children are committed to the work of new creation. He watches and He understands what's at stake. He knows how it will all play out in the end. And He finds it favorable and gracious and good when His children trust Him to have their best interests at heart. And I think we can just boil this down to kind of church life before we move on to the final point. John Stott writes, the problem we experience whenever we think about the church concerns the tension between the ideal and the reality. The ideal and the reality. The ideal is beautiful. The church is the chosen and beloved people of God, his own special treasure, the covenant community to whom he has committed himself forever, engaged in continuous worship of God and in compassionate outreach to the world, a haven of love and peace and pilgrim people headed for the eternal city. That's great. But in reality, we who claim to be the church are often a motley rabble of rather scruffy individuals, half-educated and half-saved, uninspired in our worship, constantly bickering with each other, concerned more for our maintenance than our mission, struggling and stumbling along the road, needing constant rebuke and exhortation, which are readily available from both Old Testament prophets and New Testament apostles." You know, there isn't, a, there isn't a church in this world that that last paragraph doesn't apply to. That's just, that's the world we live in. This is the world that Peter invites us to inhabit, to be aware of our position and our posture. So how do we live like this? Okay, if this is our reality, how do we live like this? understanding how impossibly high this calling is, understanding what kind of humility and selfless generosity it requires. How do you possibly live like this? Where do you get that kind of power? Where do you find that kind of power? And we've been circling this territory, but let's just land there. The power to live like this, to return blessings for curses, it comes through faith as we absorb the truth of the gospel into our lives. It comes through faith as we absorb the truth of the gospel into our lives. And the truth of the gospel is that Jesus loves you so much that he absorbed all of the evil the world could throw at him in your place. He knew that you could never live up to this high calling. He knew that on your own, you could never return blessing for curses. He knew your gut reaction when you were wronged. He knew the thoughts you uh, buried deep and never would dare to utter. And he still crawled on that cross in your place and died for you so that you could live this high calling. The power to live this way comes when you realize that your identity, your value, and your worth is not from the words and the actions of others to you, but what Jesus Christ, the living word, did for you. Right? I'm going to say that one more time. The power to live this way comes when you realize that your identity, your value, and your worth is not from the words and the actions of others to you, 
but what Jesus Christ, the living word, did for you. And the degree to which that reality is embedded deep within you, that's the degree to which you will live out this calling here in 1 Peter 3. Jesus is the perfectly righteous one that's described in Psalm 34. Yet he was condemned. He loved the unrighteous, but in the end he went unloved. His words and actions were righteous, but he was declared unrighteous on our behalf. But praise God, the story didn't end there. The Father found him worthy and raised him victorious so that our living hope lives and reigns and sends his spirit to comfort us and empower us as we live out this high calling placed on our life. He is the perfect example of those five graces of returning good for evil. His tongue spoke no evil. His lips spoke no deceit. He turned from all evil and brought peace to earth. But in his greatest moment of need, the eyes of the Lord turned away and the Father's ears were deaf to his cry. He knows better than anyone what it's like to receive curses. And he knows better than anyone what it's like to exchange blessings for curses. In addition to whatever other call God is placing on you, I don't know what other calls you are feeling, but in addition to whatever other calls God is placing on you, you are called to this. Bless. Need a purpose? Here it is. Bless. Be a blessing. Actively take part in the new creation life by being an extension of God's gracious blessing to the world. That final song they sang this morning about multiplying. Man, that was excellent selection. That's how it works, right? We understand that's how it works. So in conclusion, a few thoughts for reflection. You know, maybe, um, maybe you're listening to this and you've, you're not sure that you're living out of this kind of born again, born into a new life hope. Maybe today's the day where you, rather than walking along and looking sideways at it, maybe you turn towards Jesus and start heading that direction. Maybe, you're un, maybe you are well aware of the fact that there has been curses and evil and bitterness brewing in your heart. Maybe you're not comfortable with the way you've been reacting to your spouse, to your boss, to your employees. Maybe you're troubled by the tendencies you've been experiencing lately, flying off the handle. Maybe today's the day to pump the brakes a bit and head in a new direction. How is the Holy Spirit calling you to grow in the graces? Is there repentance that needs to happen because you have been resisting an area of growth? Are there instances where you've been struggling to return good for evil? Can you think of particular moments in your life right now where you know that you are struggling to return good for evil? Is there a commitment that you can make today to make an on-the-contrary turn? Right? Is today the place where you make a note in the margin of your Bible, I'm going to call so-and-so this week? Right? Maybe before you leave here today, someone can pray with you to that end. 
What kind of world are you speaking into existence? In your home, in your church, at your work, at your school, in your neighborhood? How is the Holy Spirit calling you to extend the new creation work of Jesus Christ by speaking blessing into the lives of those around you? Are you actively taking part? Are you an agent of blessing, an agent of the new creation? Each one of us has a choice here this morning. Each one of us has a choice from the very youngest to the very oldest to accept this calling. Will you, contrary to all the voices and noises around you, will you bless? Will you, contrary to the curses and the reviling, will you offer blessing? This is what it looks like to step into that living hope to allow it to inform every corner of our day, to be totally shaped by kingdom life. And may God grant each one of you, through his spirit, the power to live out this calling. May you bless and may you be blessed. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here with you. And may God's blessing and his peace rest upon you.